Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to you all hearts are open. To you every desire is known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the story is told that Martin Luther challenged one of his students by saying, I'll give you a new horse and carriage if you can pray the Lord's Prayer and concentrate on every phrase without losing your train of thought. So the young man took the challenge. But after he had prayed the prayer, he had to confess to Luther, all I could think about was the horse and carriage. <laughs> this is often the challenge, the classic challenge of spirituality it seems. How do we focus our attention on spiritual matters with all the distraction of physical ones? I'd like to spend more time in prayer, but there's always one more business meeting. You hope to give more attention to reading your Bible, but there's always cleaning the house or picking up the children or those extra hours at the job. Heaven and earth seem to be at odds with each other. So some Christians spend their lives feeling guilty about how much attention they give to the mundane realities of life, while other Christians who attempt to be more spiritual get accused of being so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. In con the contrast between the spiritual and the mundane runs deep. In one form, this is the spirit of Gnosticism alive and well among us. Of course, passages like today, today's scripture from Colossians, don't seem to help much. It's always been tempting for readers of scripture to read the, the word of God in an otherworldly or Gnostic sense. Colossians 3 says, Since then you've been raised up with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now because of the long influence of Greek philosophy in the way we think, most of us have been prone to understand this passage as recommending that Christians ought to stop thinking about their physical existence and instead should spend the bulk of their time considering going to heaven. We used to take this notion to justify all sorts of asceticisms and self-denials, a lack of involvement in the world in favor of a grim, otherworldly kind of spirituality that makes us sometimes apologetic for being human. Within this sort of Gnostic spirituality, we start to think that things like art and culture and sex are bad in themselves and that Christians should always prefer prayer over play and worship over work. We feel neglectful if we read a novel when we could be reading the Bible. We feel guilty for talking about the Pistons when we really ought to be talking about Jesus. 
We can't justify going to work or the mall or the museum without making it a witnessing trip. In such a view, evangelism always cancels out environmental concerns or social justice. Caring for the spiritual needs of people is always higher on the list of obligations than caring for their physical needs. Fact is, you can always find something spiritual to do instead of playing cards or watching TV or spending a romantic evening with your spouse. Now, of course, many of us at Trinity Church might have the opposite problem. We might tend too far in the opposite direction. But what is of concern in this particular text is what is the true nature of worldliness and what is the true nature of spirituality? Last week, we looked at Paul's concept of worldliness and saw that it's dramatically different than what most of us think. Traditionally, we take worldliness to mean any form of involvement in the physical world and spirituality as any kind of denial of the physical world. But in fact, nothing could be further from Paul's mind. From last week's text, you remember that Paul describes worldliness in exactly the opposite way. Worldliness, he says, is the ethic that teaches do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, worldliness is what most religious people call spirituality. Yesterday at Jim Schwalm's wedding, Bert and Marge Smith were telling me about the experience of having to run past the church on the way to the movie theater for fear of being seen by someone. And I can recall as a, as a young boy that the enormous the experience of enormous guilt when I visited my first art museum, thinking that I shouldn't like this stuff so much if I'm a good Christian, because the world is bad. Human culture is corrupt. And surely I could find something more spiritual to do with my time and my attention. The reasoning was, nobody wants to be found in the movie theater or at the rock concert when Jesus comes back. And then it occurred to me, I didn't really want to be taking a shower or going to the bathroom when Jesus came back. <laughs> but somehow those things still seem important. I'm sure you're thankful of that. <laughs> For the Apostle Paul then, spirituality is not defined by how much geography we can put between ourselves and our own humanity. Spirituality is not a matter of separating ourselves from the physical creation, considering the world bad, spending all of our time thinking about escaping to heaven. But what catches us off guard in today's text is Paul's language of up and down, of heaven and earth. This Gnostic or Greek influence in our faith teaches us that there's a great divide between the physical and the spiritual, and that up is good and down is, well, bad. And so we think that we ought to turn our attention away from our earthly obligations if we're going to be truly spiritual, that we need to focus our attention strictly or solely upon our heavenly concerns. And yet if we were to take this completely seriously, every one of us here would have to ab abandon marriage and family. We would all have to quit our jobs, go off to live in caves as hermits, spending our time in constant prayer and meditation with no cable TV. Ascetic self-denial has always been considered the highest form of, spiritual, of spirituality in virtually every religion. And yet Paul 
has a different view of spirituality. Paul says that this kind of living lacks any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Spend a decade in a monastery and you'll still be capable of greed and lust and deception. We need to follow then Paul's argument more closely to see precisely what he's doing in today's text. And in order to, the, to do that, we need to think like Jews rather than like Greeks. I apologize to you Greeks out there. But historically, philosophically, Greeks tend to think about heaven as a faraway place to which we escape when we're released from the prison house of the body and from the evil realities of the physical world. Plato says spirit is good, matter is bad, matter is evil. But Hebrews, the biblical writers, on the other hand, teach that the physical creation is good because it's made by God. Spirituality is not about some far-off disembodied existence. Spirituality is about what we do here and now within God's creation. It's not about how we deny our bodies. It's about how we use them to serve God. It's not about how we ignore creation. It's about how we live within God's creation. And so heaven for Hebrews is the very presence of God. And heaven intersects with the created earth because God is fully present, the Hebrews believe, within creation as the creator, as the sustainer, as the redeemer of all things. And God is ever moving toward us in creation and redemption. And so when Paul talks about thinking on things above, it's in the context of this notion that God has moved toward us in redemption in Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ in redemption is the central idea in Paul's mind here. Because Jesus is the eternal image of God, taking on human flesh, living among us, living fully as a human being. So consider for a moment just how worldly Jesus was. He spent almost three decades of his life as a carpenter, working a job just like most of us do, myself excluded. He lived within a family, not off in isolation. He had a circle of friends, some with very questionable reputations. Notice as you read the Gospels how many times you find Jesus at parties, at celebrations. His wedding gift was once 400 gallons of wine. And his opponents, who thought spirituality was about denying our humanity, accused Jesus of being a drunk, a glutton, and a friend of sinners. It would be strange to make that accusation against Jesus if he lived as a hermit with most of his life spent in meditation and prayer. Jesus is the embodiment of God in the world. He demonstrates the value that God places on our humanity and he shows us what it looks like to live as human beings. And Colossians goes on to say that Jesus has physically died on our behalf. He rose from the dead on our behalf and he ascended to the right hand of the Father on our behalf. All of this to demonstrate 
not only his participation within the created world, but his rightful sovereignty over the created world. The case that the Apostle Paul is trying to make here is that our very identity as Christians is found in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That all these events are not simply moments in the past that you need to affirm. They should define the very way you live in the world. At one time, your identity, Paul says, was found in Adam, the old man, who rebelled against God's rule and chose to follow his own authority. And the result of that rebellion was the introduction of sin, corruption, and death into the world. But Paul says you're no longer formed by that identity. You're no longer shaped by the reality of Adam and the cycle of decay in the earth around you. But instead, your identity is in this new creation, in Jesus Christ, buried, raised, and ascended. Listen again to Paul's words. Since then, you've been raised up with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Christ is now our life. His destiny is our destiny. Not only have we been transferred from death to life in his death and resurrection, we're now waiting on pins and needles for him to return because then we will also appear with him in glory. And so to set our minds on things above is to have our marching orders in the here and now come from the risen and ascended Christ. But notice that Christ is not ascended to the Father as a permanent place of escape because Christ plans on returning to his creation to finish what he started. And it is only when creation itself is transformed that God's work of redemption will be complete. This means that Christians can't be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good because heaven is oriented toward the future and full resurrection of creation. God is proactive toward the world he made. And if we are called to set our mind on things above, that means that we have our identity shaped by the Jesus who is reigning from the side of the Father. And because of the values of Jesus, we can't help but love and serve the world that he made and is now redeeming. To put it another way, the church's identity is not found in our physical separation from the world, but in our immersion within it, in our incarnation of God's love on behalf of a world caught in a cycle of death and decay introduced by Adam, but which has now been embraced by Jesus Christ for redemption. The ethic of the church can't be, can't be one of avoidance or denial, but one of immersion and involvement. Colossians 3 is calling us to engage the world with a different set of values 
values determined by the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus. And on the basis of this established reality, Paul tells us that we are already in a position to live according to the values of the living and reigning Christ rather than those of the dead and defeated Adam. He says, since you have taken off the old man with his practices and have put on the new man, which is now being renewed in the knowledge and image of his creator. And, and this is where many translations fail us. We get translations like, take off the old self and put on the new self, which completely individualizes and subjectivizes the point here. We get this impression that there's this old nature and new nature somehow fighting it out inside of us. But the word that Paul uses here is not self, but the Greek word anthropos, human. The old human is Adam, who introduced death and sin into the world. The new human for Paul is Christ, who brings redemption and new life into the world. The practice of the early church at baptism was to have the baptized person strip off their old clothing before they entered the waters. And when they came out of the waters of baptism, they're given a new white robe saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is making allusion to this. In our baptism, we have stripped off the old tattered clothing of Adam and we have put on the clothing of Christ, or more directly, we have put on Christ himself. And so to turn our attention to things above is to have our very lives oriented properly by the risen and ascended Christ who will return not to destroy creation, but to restore it. In Jesus Christ, Heaven comes down to earth to bring all things back into relationship to their creator. Eugene Peterson captures this notion well. He writes, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the old things over which Christ presides. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't just shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what, what is going around in Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. So since our identity is found in the ascended and ruling Christ, we are called to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. Whatever was attached to Adam in his ways that were leading to death, we need to put them to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, Paul says, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and wicked language from your lips. Our practice needs to conform with what we know about our position in Christ. It's important to note that Paul doesn't just say, put away sex, put away pleasure, put away possessions. 
That's the simple approach. That's the Gnostic approach. It's a denial of the physical world. But the foundational biblical teaching that God is the creator of the world, the creator of our sexuality, the creator of all things, teaches us that we can't say such a thing. That, Paul says, is worldliness. And so Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't call us to an abandonment of these things, but to the proper use of them. The Christian ideal is not the avoidance of sex, but the use of sex within the God-given covenant of marriage. The Christian is not called to avoid pleasure, but to understand that pleasure is not an end in itself. It's a gift from God. The Christian is not called to consider possessions to be evil, but rather the improper desire for them or the selfish use of them. Outside of their creative context, all of these things can become idols, not because they are evil in themselves, but because we are prone to set them up as ends in themselves rather than as gifts from God to be received with gratitude. Because we have been buried with Christ, we need to put to death all behaviors that are Christ-denying. Because we have been raised with Christ, we need to live in such a way that our character speaks of this new life. In Jesus Christ, Paul teaches us God is creating a new kind of human being, shaped by the truth of the gospel rather than by lies, motivated by the patterns of the age to come rather than by our old self-destructive patterns. And today's text ends caps off this ethical teaching with a very practical reality, the way we see other people. In this realm of existence under the rule of Christ, Paul says, there is no longer Gentile or Jew. There is no longer circumcised or uncircumcised. There is no longer barbarian or savage, slave or free. Why? Because Christ is all and is in all. There are few things that run deeper in us than our prejudices, than our assumptions about other people. But Jesus Christ intends to transform that by causing us to see his image imprinted on other people. Bishop Desmond Tutu wrote, one of the most blasphemous consequences of injustice, especially racial injustice, is that it could make a child of God doubt that he or she is a child of God. But the gospel breaks down these man-made walls. We're compelled to see Jesus Christ in other people so that our tendency to hate, to distinguish and discriminate should be ever fading away as we become more like Jesus because Christ is remaking humanity in his own image. One commentator writes, if Christ is everything and in everything, then nothing can diminish or disparage the standing of any one human being in relation to one another or to God. Notice where Christ ends up in today's passage. We began by setting your mind on things above. The passage ends by teaching us that Christ is all and is in all. Christ is not 
in some faraway, unapproachable heaven, disinterested in the affairs of the world. Christ, as ruler of creation, is present everywhere within creation. And with our new orientation, Paul, Paul says, we ought to see Christ everywhere in creation. The ancient Celtic Christians had a profound sense of this notion. They had prayers of thanksgiving for every clap of thunder, for, break, for, for baking bread, for milking cows. Heaven, they said, is not even one foot above our heads. And one of the ways that they demonstrated this was to erect crosses everywhere, on hillsides, in sheep pastures, in the center of town. I saw a photograph recently in Ireland of a hillside where there is the, the image of the Trinity made out of trees from hundreds of years ago in the middle of nowhere. The existence of these images, the existence of these crosses outside of churches was a way of reminding one another that Christ is all and is in all. Heaven intersects with earth. And so to focus our attention on Christ is not a way of escaping the world, of turning our backs on God's creation or our humanity, but it's a way of living in the world according to the values of Christ's kingdom, to think on things above where Christ rules over all creation is the truest way to affirm God's world. C.S. Lewis put it this way, aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit.